This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Running alternate history games. The North Korean Embassy Raid. Mark Morrison. And Baron Franz Nopcha. Battling spellcasters throw down in God's Forge. From Atlas Games, the publisher of Gloom, Once Upon a Time, and Ars Magica. In God's Forge, you roll, re-roll, and combine dice to summon creations and cast spells. Be the last wizard standing. Or at least the least dead wizard. At the end of the game. Because having remains to send home to your family counts as victory in our book. God's Forge is available May 1st at your friendly local game store. Learn more about the game at atlas-games.com slash godsforge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But what's this? The shag carpet is aubergine, not avocado? It's not Peter Frampton? It's actually Roger Daltrey on some sort of solo tour? Oh my god, the dice are all 12-siders? Oh, don't even tell me, the Doritos are prawn-flavored. We're in an alternate history, Robin, an alternate gaming hut. And it's all because of a question from Patreon backer Jacob Ansari, who asks, How would you pitch and execute an alt-history setting in your game, a la Mary Gentle's Ilario, or Harry Turtledove's Agent of Byzantium? It seems like the particular joy as a reader of discovering how the familiar and the strange interact would drive players nuts. Robin, I'm going to begin by premise questioning the hell out of it, so why don't you... Well, I'm going to start by uh, supporting that premise. In Good for that you. Here is my impression of the alternate history subgenre. Why, welcome, I'm your waiter for tonight. My name is Clemens, Samuel Clemens. Why, one day I thought I would be a great writer, but due to a hay-cart accident, here I am, your waiter for this evening. May I recommend... The porterhouse steak, it is the biggest porterhouse steak this side of the Pecos. It's 48 ounces, but if you want to divide it between you, why, I would be happy to cut it in twain. That's the alternate history genre. That's the alternate history genre. Wow. A a harsh and bitter takedown. So, yes, it, it would certainly drive me nuts. How would you make this nonsense entertaining? <laughs> well, I have run alternate history settings. I have sold plenty of them to my players. And the way you do it is when you introduce a character, like, say, the waiter at the steakhouse, if the waiter at the steakhouse is important, then maybe you make him Sam Clemens. Maybe you don't make him Sam Clemens. But the thing is that if players interact with some part of the history or some part of the setting in any game, that says that they're interested. And that is where you can highlight the aspect of an alternate history that they may be interacting if that is the thing to do in the moment. It's like any other beat in a story. If you're in a romance game, is this a romantic opportunity or is this a regular opportunity? If you're in may, a, may I posit at this point to be definitionally annoying? Sure. And ask what? if there's, sure. Yes, <laughs> if there's a if there's a, a difference between a historical setting with fantastic elements added, which right. technically makes it a alternate setting, uh, mm-hmm. like your recent uh, Unknown Armies in the in the Old West game, mm-hmm. and an alternate history game. Is there? Yes, there is. Okay, and that yes. difference is that difference is that on an alternate history game, a non magical observer, an observer with nothing to go by but the World Almanac or the Encyclopedia Britannica from both worlds, would instantly able to tell that something is different. They would say, "Oh, look at that! Lincoln wasn't the president. Uh, Seward was the president." They'll be able to say, "Oh, look at that! The Nazis won." Oh, look at that! Stalin is still alive for some strange reason. I mean, they would have. And sort of a, an ironic objective knowledge that history had changed and they wouldn't know there's Cthulhu's or vampires or what we generally term the secret history part of a fantastical history. I mean, sometimes, uh, people will even say, we're just running straight up regular history. It's just that everyone has magic and tech, but everything just fell out the same way it was. So everyone knows Himmler's a wizard and it's like, all right. So is, is day after Ragnarok, uh, an alternate day after uh, Ragnarok is an alternate history because, um, the Midgard serpent destroys civilization in 1945. And so after that, things have changed dramatically. Now that's a 
that that's an alternate history that sort of cheats a little bit by having its alternate be an apocalypse and people are very used to post-apocalypse games. And again, one of the treasures of a post-apocalypse game is to recognize a ruin of the former world present in your existing world. But part of the fun in Dave Ragnar is also things like Ronald Reagan made a movie of Conan the Barbarian because Hollywood wanted to make movies showing people fighting giant snakes. And he was uh, a leading man in that era. And so he gets to be Conan. And that's fun because Arnold Schwarzenegger was also the governor of California and a Republican. So see, that's fun. And when people recognize that, they recognize it as a divergence and because you're in an alternate history, divergence is part of the fan service. Uh, an alternate history in which the only change was uh, Ulysses S. Grant's vice president was different. It's alternate, but it's not interesting. So if you're setting something in an alternate history, unless the reason he's different is he was eaten by elves in your secret history, that's, you know, the the, the real reason is um, uh, to, to have fun with that, with those changes. Again, the, the big, bold, crazy ones, you know, your men in the high castle type stuff. Part of it is just the, the frisson of seeing a swastika flag unreeling down the Board of Trade building in Chicago. Part of the fun, though, is also uh, you get to fight Nazis in Cleveland instead of in Belgium or somewhere. So it's it's about rotating the setting to p- produce interesting events. And that's the goal of an alternate history in a novel. And it's certainly the goal of it in play, because an alternate history is presenting a a set of elements that uh, can inform and amuse, and those elements should be just judiciously placed in the setting, just like every other element of a setting, just like every moment, as I was saying, in Call of Cthulhu is not horror. Uh, some of it is just interacting with speakeasies or whatever, but every moment in an alternate history Call of Cthulhu is interacting with speakeasies, or it's horror, or it's, oh, Huey Long is president. I wonder if that's bad. And then that's uh, that's part of the fun, right? Right. I would define alternate timelines and alternate history also as two different things. So, for example, the aftermath sequence in uh, the Yellow King role-playing game is an alternate timeline in that uh, it is the present day, uh, but you have just overthrown the uh, casting regime that has ruled America for 100 years. But I do not think of that as an alternate history because it never mentions a single historical figure from our known history. All of the historical figures are fictional, and uh, the uh, interest level in showing what uh, John F. Kennedy or Louis Armstrong were up to uh, in that world is is zero. Um, I did run for my players a session in which the mystery revolved around the fact that uh, the people being murdered were people who had become famous in our world, but were completely obscure mm-hmm. in that world. But that's as close as I came to ever dealing with that. And that is different from the I'm Sam Clemens, I'll be your waiter tonight thing that bugs me about reading alternate history in that, weirdly, it always seems that you're bumping into famous people uh, from the other timeline, and there's just too many of them in any given uh, storyline. And and every time that happens, I find anyway that it takes me out of the narrative on the written page. But perhaps since uh, role-playing is already uh, kind of metafictional, that that would be less uh, irritating. And, And I guess probably also I would point to uh, the way that everybody in the world of darkness, all the famous people are vampires, is also annoying in the same way. That it, yeah, uh, and and like everything else, I mean, uh, tastes differ. So for some people, the fact that literally every single famous person is a vampire is part of the fun. Uh, to some people, they can read a novel like The Two Georges and enjoy the fact that, hey, Dick Nixon is a card dealer that we've run into. That's funny. As opposed to, oh, my God, this is happening. And, and it's just a matter of... Uh, of, you know, how high is the dial set? There, there are horror novels that because they present a werewolf or a monster or whatever so often, they never build up horror. It just becomes, this is, there's a lot of werewolves in this novel. The same thing I think is true with alternate history, that the, the point of any novel or any game setting is to, uh, entertain the reader or, uh, place them ideally into a, into a, a fictive world. And you can do it bad or you can do it well. You can do it subtly, or you can do it unsubtly, and I think in many cases, once you've unfurled the Nazi flag down the side of the Board of Trade building, no one really cares what happened to Richard Daly. Maybe that's true, but maybe that's part of the fun, is that Richard Daly is, you know, a Gauleiter, and he's running the Nazi party, or maybe Richard Daly is fighting the good fight, because he hates the Nazis, and that's an interesting change anyway, and you're like, can we trust this guy? He seems kind of, I don't know, like a bad guy to be heading our resistance, and that makes sort of an interesting change. I mean, again, in a historical game, 
Uh, part of the fun is running into historical figures, and that's why when the players went to Tombstone in 1881, of course they ran into Earps. That was the whole point of going to Tombstone. Otherwise, they could have gone to Silver City and run into other cowboys no one had ever heard of, um, or except me. And uh, when they went to New York, they ran into young Robert Chambers and young um, uh, Charles Dana Gibson as art students, and that was part of the fun of that adventure. But it's not that also their waiter was the future um, uh, Gloria Graham or something. It was just because I needed art students in that story and I had two cool art students to put in. I put them in. And again, in an alternate history, if you're running a thing and you're running into two art students and it's like, Hey, art students come help us. Uh, by the way, what's your name? It's like, Oh, I'm Adolf, but you know, you can call me, um, uh, uh, boss. And he's like, okay, boss. And what's your friend? Oh, he's Rudolf Hess. He's not actually an artist, but he just hangs around me for no reason. Okay, fine. So were your players looking to, uh, then dive into, oh, I'm hanging out with, uh, Chambers and Gibson and, and make something of that? Or is that just sort of a, a cool little, uh, grace note? It began as a, as, as a little grace note. I mean, some of the things that were infesting Chambers' nightmares were recognizable, of course, but they were also that fiction through the fiction of my game. So it's also an alternate King in Yellow in his nightmares. And then they dealt with that a little bit. But if they bounced off that and said, oh, that's fun, Ken's having fun, it would have been, oh, that's just a grace note, and I don't have to push the pedal because there's other ways I can introduce horror into that scenario. Um, but again, if they really glom on, and they kind of glommed on, and individual players glommed on more than others because that always happens at the table regardless of the element, um, you try and feed the reward to the player that is interested, and then you don't stall the whole game for the players that aren't interested. And that's, that's true of literally, as I say, any scenic element in a game is that some players are going to be more or less interested. And so if you're in, um, uh, the yellow King history and Eric Satie is playing piano, is that a key element or is that a grace note? You know, you can decide, right? They go to hear Vidor play the organ. Uh, is that, you know, a big giant adventure or is it a fun, when you leave Saint-Sulpice, you're very excited because you just heard Vidor play the organ and he was even better than the last five times you've heard him. Yeah, that guy's going to be something someday. Now the adventure starts. I mean, how do you run it? So the, the pitching it to your, your players bet, right. um, are, are you pitching them, uh, if you know that they're all into that, that they all mm-hmm. want to interact with, you know, alternate, uh, Mark Twain's and Jackie Robinson's, that, uh, you pitch it to them as an alternate history and you tell them where the, fork point is where everything changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably, uh, if you have a bunch of players who you know are not so much uh, into that, but might enjoy whatever core activity uh, that they're doing, whether it's, you know, overthrowing the uh, the Nazi movement in America in the 60s or, uh, you know, hunting for uh, uh, gemstones that will allow the universe to knit back together, that that you pitch that core activity and sort of the alternate history then becomes the thing you need in order to serve that premise, I would think. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and, and that I think is true because if you, if the whole, I mean, God knows we've both read novels where the whole premise is, Hey, check it out. I figured what happened if, you know, sitting bull, uh, lost it, uh, at, um, uh, little bighorn and everyone's like, uh, then Custer becomes president. Am I interested? Why am I interested? Because I really figured out that Custer would be president. All right, fine. But there's also novels that are really, really good and interesting, and they're Westerns or they're political novels or they're whatever, but also they kind of turn on the fact that George Armstrong Custer became president, and that's neat. And so a lot of it is you should be selling the core activity regardless, because travelogue is seldom a core activity of any game. And because, again... I could have just written up my scenario notes, sent them to the players, and they would have had just as much fun if the entire experience is, you know, on your left, you will see Mount Rushmore with the face of President Custer on it. Wow, pretty crazy. But if you're having an adventure that's in South Dakota anyway, and you happen to go past Mount Rushmore, and you look up and it's like, ah, Custer's on it. That's weird. And then go on with your core activity, that becomes fun and interesting, funner and more interesting. So for scenario inspiration, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're either uh, deriving, uh, if you're highlighting the alternate history of it, that you find the premise of your adventure in uh, the extrapolation from your fork point. Right. And, uh, and so this is an adventure in which, you know, that you discover that uh, Nikola Tesla, in fact, has... Uh, the prominence that uh, Thomas Edison did and what are the, uh, and what adventure springs out of that. Or mm-hmm. if you're downplaying the alternate history thing, you come up with an interesting adventure and then you think, oh, well, I need 
uh, an electrical uh, genius to show up, oh, well, of course, it would be Tesla, and we can just throw in the fact that he is uh, has a, a big-time industrial success in this world. So, right. uh, you, uh, so do you ask your players at the outset what where they want to set the dial at and how much uh, history they want in their alternate history? I mean, a lot of it is knowing your players. I mean, I've been playing with this same group for, I mean, depending on, on Theseus' ship, I've been playing with them for 30 years. But this individual group is, you know, at least probably eight or ten years long. So I sort of have a guess as to how much they want to see. And certainly when I'm selling the premise at the beginning, if I say we're going to be playing a uh, game of resistance against uh, the American Reich that uh, when the Nazis uh, took over in 1940 uh, got set up and it, it's set in the, in the 70s. So it's sort of Quentin Tarantino's uh, Man in the High Castle. That's our game. People would say, yes, no, don't care. But they would know that alternate history is sort of a central element of it. If I'm saying, for example, in the, in the Immortals game, the players could build their own alternate history. And, and part of their, my fun and their challenge was to do something in one session's play that then a decade later, I would tell them how the world had changed. And that became sort of, we want to build this. All right. If this happens, this other stuff happens, or we don't care what happens. We just want to destroy this. Then that's what happens. And so that becomes an interactive play. But I think that's, Maybe not for everybody. And then some games are just, yeah, we're going to run unknown armies in the old West and it's going to be our history. But if you guys change it, it's going to get changed, right? If, if they'd saved President Garfield's life with their bullet finder, then he would have stayed president. You don't nerf a player's success, right? Yes. It's, it's alternate history if you decide that it is part mm-hmm. way through. Uh, well, on that note, uh, we are not in the reality where this uh, podcast is four hours long with an hour per segment. So it's time for us to uh, check out uh, this exciting commercial message and then what is undoubtedly another segment on the other side of it. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and the background check that you had to undergo in order to listen to this segment alert you to the fact that you are once again listening to the Tradecraft Hut. And this time I thought we would talk about uh, a, a very remarkable story in the news that I'm sure uh, various thriller writers are incorporating into their uh, uh, books and screenplays for next year. And that is the uh, raid on the North Korean embassy in Madrid by a dissident organization or a terrorist organization, depending on how you want to look at it, called Free Joseon. Uh, and it was uh, renamed that from its former name of the Chilima Civil Defense. Uh, this is a group that wishes to overthrow the North Korean government. And if ever uh, there was a uh, government that uh, shouldn't be in power, it would certainly be uh, the North Korean uh, government. But, uh, in fact, they, it looks like they renamed themselves after the raid. After the raid, yeah. So they, when they, so the raid was on February 22nd. And then I guess that's how you cover your tracks as you change the name of your organization. Or I think uh, maybe that's how you sort of say, before we went on this raid, we were merely 
the Chalium of Civil Defense, but now we are free Josion because look at us. We've done something awesome. Because the defense went on the offense, so we, right. so we rebranded. Exactly. And, uh, uh, Joseon, as those of us who love, uh, Korean cinema know, is the name of the royal dynasty that uh, reigned from, uh, 1392 to 1897. So all of those period epics are set in that really long chunk of, of, uh, time. And so if you know your court intrigue, you know that, uh, term. So, what are we to uh, make of this story, Ken? It's certainly uh, uh, big and exciting. Uh, what, it was big uh, what, and exciting. What struck you ab- about it? Well, I mean, the first thing, I mean, first thing it was sort of the audacity of raiding an embassy, because given the number of embassies and the number of troublemakers, that doesn't seem to happen very often. I mean, famously, Kurdish separatists, separatists raided the Iranian embassy in London and were chased out by the SAS in a fairly uh, bold uh, uh, move. By everybody involved, I think. Um, and then, of course, our embassy got taken by the Iranians uh, right after the revolution. Every so often, uh, embassies are are taken in some sort of dramatic way by by groups. I think the Red Brigades took over an embassy in Italy at one point. Peruvian right, embassy, but got usually stolen. the group is native to the country in which the embassy is being taken over. So right, yeah, they. they I mean, in in, in in well, in the case where the Kurds took over the Iranian embassy in London, that wasn't the case. They right. were native of, to some extent to Iran and took over an Iranian embassy. And that's the parallel here is that Free Joseon uh, has at least some Koreans in it. We don't know how many North Koreans it has in it, but it has some Koreans. And uh, it had uh, at least one American and at least one Mexican national involved also in the in the raid, according to the Spanish high court which just sort of announced the names of the suspects, which was kind of a baller move given what the North Korean government does to everyone. Uh, especially right. well, if you're, if you're the uh, Spanish security uh, service and this happened on your watch, you uh, might be feeling peevish. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grant you, but, but again, it's, it was not I mean, the difference between this and the Iranian uh, embassy seizure was that they were actually unarmed. I mean, they were armed with like sticks, but they brought in pretend guns, not real guns. Yes, they had replica guns and replica, replica knives. Yes, and and so they had um, sticks that they used to beat up one of the embassy guys and perhaps more of the embassy people. We, again, we they had, it hasn't come out in trial, so we're just listening to prosecutor information at this point or North Korean information, which is if anything even less reliable. Right. Um, so, but, so they stormed in. They, they stormed uh, in. Uh, t- took uh, the uh, embassy staff they found there and some uh, architecture student guests. That just happened to be there on a random there. day. Uh, they uh, tied them to chairs. The attache they uh, interrogated and uh, uh, beat up, and, uh, and uh, according to the account anyway, uh, tried to get him to defect, which is, uh, I don't think, something most people have ever been punched into doing. Uh, well, I think maybe it was like defect, and he's like, uh, no, and then it began. It was, I think defect may have been the opening bid. Right. And then became the punching. I don't think it was like during. <laughs> right. And, and, and at one point, the uh, Madrid police uh, stopped by, but the... Uh, one of the, uh, lead guys, Adrian. He just Hong showed up Chang. with his, um, uh, Kim Jong-un badge on and said, nope, nothing here. Nothing Go away. Here. And, and of course you, you can't just waltz into an embassy. You cannot just waltz into an embassy. Something it's bad very is going uncool. on there. And the thing that makes this an, an espionage story is, uh, after, uh, uh, roughing up the staff, they then, uh, grabbed Every possible bit of computer media and and self anything with a hard drive they took with them and scampered away. Yeah, and it is a and, and they drove out in embassy cars and yeah. an Uber. It turned out uh, the the ringleader guy under the name of Oswaldo Trump got his Uber. <laughs> so that's fun right yeah. there. And then the Spanish court uh, sort of they investigated the the situation, and then the Spanish court sort of uh, hinted around for a while that the CIA had been behind it and. I think that this was um, very nice of the Spanish court. They said, because of the extreme professionalism of the job, that it must have been CIA. And God <laughs> well, bless you, Spanish court. They made court. it a compliment. Yeah, I mean, the, the Spanish court, I mean, I don't want to, you know, disabuse. They are a young, beautiful court, and they're going to learn about the world as they get older and, and meet bad people. But my heart goes out to someone who believes that is a mark of CIA involvement. That's beautiful. Mossad, I would buy, but right. CIA, <laughs> no. And and normally you would say that this does not seem uh, like a CIA sort of thing. This is a uh, and it would have happened a, right before the summit. I mean, yeah, the, the, it happened right on the context of the North Korean summit with the president and with the South Koreans. And so 
this would be the wrong time for the CIA to say, hey, let's just steal a bunch of hard drives. That'd be fun. But on the other hand, I think if someone shows up, as these guys apparently did, to the FBI and said, who wants to buy some cool hard drives? Yeah, someone stumped up some, you know, uh, petty cash and, and, and wound up with them. Uh, and so that was a thing. But it was not the same thing as saying the CIA was behind it right. versus these guys just. And again, it, and, you know, and certainly it says, the CIA wouldn't sell them to the FBI. That, that's right? Not, yeah, that, that's, that, that's the least credible part of the story. Right? Yes, exactly. That if that if it was CIA, they they would not be using the FBI yes. as the cutout. Uh, we, we've run out of uh, funds for our yogurt fund at Langley, mm-hmm. uh, so we need Guys. to sell you these. Hard drive? Yeah, so the, um, uh, oh, the yogurt fund at Langley, though, that's a, that's a good fund. So the, the, the guys are still at large, the, the perpetrators, the free Joseon guys. They are keeping a low profile, obviously. We know that at least one of them went to America after the thing, but we don't know if he's still there. And, uh, the Spanish are talking about extradition if they get arrested, which makes sense. Uh, it's a very big deal to go into a country and attack an embassy on its soil. And, uh, the Spanish are taking this very seriously, as they should. But, you know, as of this moment, and again, this this raid only happened in February, it seems like they did a good job of a raid and they got away with it. And the only people that were seriously badly hurt were maybe a North Korean spy, because if you think North Korean cultural attache, uh, and if you think, oh, that guy's probably not a spy, well, you can be in the same room with the Spanish court and learn about the world together. Right. And uh, just uh, on April 22nd, uh, a, a former U.S. Marine named Christopher Ahn was arrested and charged uh, with being involved in it. And so uh, there's not much more getting out about that story. But uh, it does look like uh, some people are being closed in upon and that uh, the uh, the Department of Justice, anyway, is uh, uh, not so happy about this. Yeah. And again, it, it's one of those things that even if the CIA were behind it and Christopher Ahn screws up, you still have to go through the motions of arresting him. Right. Because then you, that, that really blows the gaff. So it might be that, up, oh, you screwed up. You're hung out to dry. We got our files. We don't care what happens to you, Christopher Ron. And as long as Christopher Ron doesn't have a CIA pay stub. And it's not like anyone in the federal security apparatus has any notion of what the current policy is toward Korea. So. Right. Yeah. It's all craziness. <laughs> if, well, any amount of freelancing uh, could be going on. But my, my guess is, that it is, uh, this is not a CIA operation. If yeah. You say so. I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm willing to be pleasantly surprised, but I don't think so. It, it looks to me that these guys just had watched a bunch of heist movies because they, the, the embassy was already on an isolated ground. It's not a townhouse. It's, it's in sort of a, a big yard. Uh, the wall was easily climbed. They knew that it was a small staff. It was like one guy and a few other, uh, consular staff. And then it was, supposed to be like maybe four people were there when they stormed in. And the fact that there was a bunch of architecture students was kind of a surprise to them, which again implies not CIA because the one thing the CIA would have access to is all of the, you know, programming and, and scheduling that the embassy had maintained because the NSA would have yanked that out of the ether. So um the fact that they, they just brought a bunch of guys, they had sticks, they knew how to get through an electronic system. I mean, that's the, the only sort of, real nice black agency part of it is that it does look like they dimmed the streetlights and and did some other stuff to prevent the electronic alarms from going off. But again, you can, you can do that with an electrician's degree. You don't need to be trained by the, by the NSA or anybody to do that. So in terms of turning this into a uh, plot material, Oh my uh, God, how don't you? <laughs> a nice, nice black agent. So uh, this uh, offers up the idea of a scenario where the climax is that you find out that the, uh, a particular embassy is a nest of vampires, and now you have a a front reason to go in, and you just uh, garb your you just uh, create a website uh, describing your uh, dissident group in whatever country the embassy uh, belongs to, and uh, uh, you know you can create the the cover story uh, if you even care to have one, I guess. In Knights Black Agents, uh, is that uh, you're you're going into uh, uh, further your political cause, but in fact. You know, you're really going after the coffin down in the basement and you just steal all of the electronics as, uh, uh, you know, part of the, uh, the veil out for that. Or, right. uh, for the esoterrorists, you find out that there's an, uh, an esoterrorist cell operating out of an embassy and, uh, you uh, have to plan, plan the embassy raid to go in and, uh, you know, find out whatever, uh, uh creature is down there and kill it or, uh, just, uh, uh take them out. Well, or, if a given embassy has got a vampire in its, uh, basement, 
then you also need to know, is that country, does that country have a vampire program? And that makes an excellent reason to yank all the electronics because you need to scour them for any information that North Korea is developing, you know, weaponized vampirism or whoever. And so that question, I mean, the embassy raid could be the opener that you begin on that. You're all hired to do the embassy raid by the, by the shadowy uh, figure. And then you do the embassy raid, you find a vampire in the basement. It's like, oh crap. Now what? And then right. you hear the noise of the Spanish police outside, and it's like, oh, we've been blown. Uh, it wasn't a woman who managed to climb out the window. It was the our, our our weird employers have sold us out. Now what do we do? And that becomes the the opening gun of the campaign is, you, well, we're going to take all the hard drives and we're going to go out through the embassy car, and now we're now we got to figure out what to do. And and that's right. and, our, and the one thing you'll never sell the players on is. Uh, yeah, the operation requires you to go in with replica guns and knives. Yeah, right. Well, the thing is, if your shadowy boss gave you the guns and knives, and then you go in, it's like, these are replica guns and yeah, knives. Yeah, that's, what that's how you have to do it. But even then, I can hear, no, wait a minute, I'm an expert in, right. I, I have uh, eight in shooting. I would have recognized the fact that they were replica guns before this mm-hmm. crucial moment, so... If you even care, right? <laughs> this is an important don't. proviso. Yeah. You know, in all instances, if you want to replicate that bit, you have to say, "Well, part of the cover is you have to seem like you've only got replicate guns and knives." So, but even there, you probably have to go. It's okay to take real guns, but you have to make sure you brandish the replica gun for the uh, delectation of the uh, the poor staffer who you tie. Well, you can bring you can brandish the real guns all you want, and then you can only fire you know uh, silence rounds. But you just have to leave behind replica guns. Yeah. And police up all your brass and make sure you didn't shoot a wall. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, that's where we are getting uh, very tied up in this. I mean, the, uh, the other sort of place that you can go with it, obviously, is you've busted into the embassy. You've pulled out all this data. Now this data is out floating around and maybe it's a legitimate free Joseon liberation group. They did it just like they said. Maybe the CIA or whoever was behind it. Maybe it wasn't. But the data are now out there and the FBI has, has bought it, but the FBI is penetrable by hackers. And so whatever the North Koreans were up to, and the North Koreans make, of course, a great Latveria for any modern day campaign. Were they building, you know, super armor? Were they trying to summon Daloth, uh, into the, the, the internet and destroy it and, and wreck capitalism? Whatever weird tech, weird magic, weird behavior they were up to is now out. And it's not penned up in North Korea, which is the closest to being a firewalled place that the world has. It's on the regular people net. And now that thing has been, the containment has been breached. This could be your zombie plague or it could be your Daloth plague or whatever that, um, uh, that they had going on. And now, uh, in the Ukraine, some hackers discover it and their eyes all melt out. Now you have to investigate that as, as the paranormal investigators that you are, or maybe you want to be able to build your own you know, giant Gundam. And so you want access to that North Korean information on Gundam building and you, uh, uh can get it by doing such and such, uh, activity. And it becomes the MacGuffin as opposed to you aren't the story. The fact that the information is out there becomes the MacGuffin or the, or the goal of the story. Uh, well, I, I think if I'm going to find more information, I'm going to uh, find the nearest exciting commercial. And uh, check it out with with great great intent for secret messages. See if it's a North Korean cover op. Yes, and then uh, and then perhaps uh, we'll be uh, heading into a, a lilting world of uh, of Australian GMing. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Make sure you stay in the timeline with Cardis in it by joining such Patreon backers as... John Rogers. Ross Ireland. Todd W. Olson. The Redacted Files Podcast. And Craig Maloney. Hey everybody, it's time once again for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time around, Ken and Robin are talking to Mark Morrison, longtime Call of Cthulhu stalwart, uh, most noted for the adventure Dead Man Stomp, which is, I gather, a classic that is now in the again in the new Call of Cthulhu, and uh, for editing horror on the Orient Express, talking about classic uh, adventures. Uh, and uh, you are also... Uh, the uh, the the mind behind campaign coins. Uh, do you, what are you working on now, Cthulhu wise? As part of horror on the Orient Express, uh, one of the original uh, handouts was set uh, talked about an event in the French Revolution. So um, last year we wrote that up as a full book uh, called Reign of Terror, which was huge fun because you get to the French Revolution and all the. All the way the mythos works change. And like if you're Amigo in, um, in during the French Revolution, brains are pretty easy to come by. Yeah. Um, so now uh, we're doing a, a companion volume of scenarios for that. And also, given that we are sitting in Poland having this discussion, I'm pleased to say that uh, I'm working on a uh, scenario set in Poland for Zef Cthulhu, which is the wonderful new 7th edition of Call of Cthulhu by Black Monk. And the scenario has been a lot of fun, so I hope that it will make its way back into English, which shouldn't be hard because I'm writing it in English and then they're translating it. Right. Uh, and so campaign coins, uh, for those listeners who don't know uh, what uh, this endeavor of yours is, uh, clue them in. My friend Andre Bishop uh, wanted money for his D&D campaign and nobody was making any in 2006. And he's the guy that said, I will. And uh, I really liked them. And when THQ, the video game studio, closed in 2011, I had a bit of time in my hands. I started helping him and now I'm, I'm a partner. Um, so, yeah, we make fake money. We will give you fake money for your real money. I don't know why we're not arrested. Uh, but it's it's nice to have tactile, chinking money at the table. We do lots of tokens. We do a really nice set of 13th age tokens of all the icons. We do some Cthulhu coins. Did and the Bander album tokens for the game Bander album by myself and Jeff Tidball. Which was super pleasing. Um, and the nicest thing about it is that I get to meet people like Jeff Tidball and Rob Heinzu and Rob Schwab. I just say, man, I love your game. I want to make some shit for it. And he says, okay, I'm into it. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. So was numismartistry, is that even a word? Coin making, but with art? Is that something that you had been a coin guy before? You were a coin collector before? Or was it just your buddy said, I want to make fake D&D money? And you were like, well, it's as good a job avoidance system as any. (laughs) (laughs) My knowledge of coins is just embarrassing, and I get a wonderful education every now and then at Gen Con when someone who knows about this shit comes up and tells me about it. Um, No, I just respond to the way it triggers your imagination and, and the fake money. And why I really love them in my games is I feel, because it's a tactile object that I hold in my hand, I'm literally at that moment shaking hands with my character. Because the object in my right. hand is the object in theirs, and it's it's really pleasing. It's a physical link between yeah. you and your fantasy character. And also, oh my god, we're playing RuneQuest uh, set in Pavis and the Rubble, so I'm totally looking forward to your project, Robin. Uh, we had a great big shopping session in RuneQuest, and when you have a fantasy shopping section with fake money, it's quite pleasing. <laughs> and people will find that uh, if they Google campaign coins? They will indeed, and Twitter and Instagram and all the stuff where nerds hang out. Uh, so the thing that we noticed uh, uh, at CarcosaCon uh, about you is that you are a game-running monster. You just ran game after game after game. You have a, an incredible energy for it. I I try when I'm at most conventions to run zero games. If someone flies me to a, a, a remote and exciting location uh, such as uh, Poland, I will run one game. But you just run them constantly. Yeah, here you come making us look bad. Uh, so uh, what I want to do is uh, ask you the secrets of running con games. What would you, if someone wants to uh, be a machine like you or just run a single great con game at their upcoming local con, what are the first steps? How do you uh, do what you do? Um, I find 
the the best moments are when we are in one time in one place with one collection of people, and we can't replicate that. It's very special. Um, so that immediately gives me an energy. Um, and I always think you've only got one chance to make a first impression. So if you've sat down at my table, like that's an honour to me. Um, and if I'm at a convention in Poland and they've spent considerable money to bring me over, I, I really want to give that back. So to begin with, I, I really want to make it as great for everybody there. So I'm arriving with energy. Um, I had a great collection of four scenarios, um, two of them written by Penny, my partner, um, one co-written by us and the other co-written by us because really she is the person who gets everything done. Like, uh, so, and it, at the start of each of these sessions, I try to do a little bit of work of building up some, giving the, the players an ability to add a little bit of background to created set characters and giving them a little hook. The one I, I like is the one in set in Poland where I say, okay, you're the professor of astronomy. You're looking for this meteor. Why is it important to you? And they will give me a little bit of secret. And then I will say, you have to bring the geologist. And why is it important to you? And if I'm really lucky, their goals are in conflict. Uh, right. And then the student is coming along. And why is it important to you? And what did you do in the war? Like the uh, the war between the Russians, 1919-1921. And if I'm really lucky, they had some traumatic experience. And they're just giving me fuel and all their fears and tensions. And then I just spend two hours boiling those up. So if... The Polish role players, who are fantastic, they so throw themselves into their characters. Um, if they see, if you, a player sees themselves in the story, then the story is more meaningful. And the other thing is, I try to use a lot of energy at the table. I'll often stand up if I want to have something kind of scary. I will really do the certain voice. And uh, like the players tonight, we're still talking about they're traumatized by the hyena, and all the hyena is in the African scenario is you just suddenly cackle right up in someone's face when they least expect it. You know, it's a pretty easy sound effect. Well, if, if uh, Robin has learned anything, it's that cackling uh, lupine creatures are the key to horror. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I'm hearing uh, energy. I'm hearing uh, start by engaging uh, your players and finding their hooks into the scenario. Uh, I think you were doing a, a setup where they got to pick from which of the four scenarios you were going to run for them. Yeah. What, what I, the, I have a reign of terror scenario, which I love so much and I've run so often that I'm a terrible person at running it because I have the ending I kind of like now and, and I will drag them to the ending I like, which is not the way we should play role playing games. So I thought to curtail my bad habits, I would literally bring a menu of scenarios. And that means I never got bored. Um, I never fell into routine. And I think players like the sensation of choice. And it was very interesting to me that um, Penny has written a fantastic scenario set in Samoa in 1928, just before like the independence movement hit the boiling point. And because she was inspired by the Samoan crisis when all the boats were sunk in the harbour, it's a really great scenario. And nobody in Poland felt that they knew enough about Samoa to play that. Mm -hmm. So that was like a, a Pacific too far for them. And the whole point of the scenario is to tell you about Samoa. Right. It's a great scenario. Oscar Rios is going to publish it at uh, Golden Golden Press. So giving players, I guess that's an interactive thing. It's, it's an accident. I just bought more scenarios than I needed. Um, but that was nice too. So how do you... Uh Given that there is uh, a big sort of uh, question mark as to what players will bring into the scenario, how thoroughly do you prepare? Is it something that you uh, you know them well enough that you can just sort of run them off the cuff, or are you uh, rereading them on the plane on the way to a convention? How what is your preparation process for running card games? Um, I, I, I have just a very small collection of them. Um, so with with Penny Scenario, which is set in Africa in 1938, uh, it's called The Hunting of Man. And the tagline for this is Ernest uh, Meet Howard. So that's her Hemingway scenario. And I've run that enough. And I know that that entire scenario is in the character backstories. And then I just create weird shit while their tensions boil over. So I think repetition, to be honest, I've just learned them fairly well. And that means if I'm not looking at a note, I'm looking at the players, and so we're really engaging with each other. It's a combination of rote learning. 
But um, I only, believe it or not, memory wiped um, the game I ran at Necronomicon 2013 because I was in Providence and we were on College Hill and we were sitting, uh, like, seeing all the sights, the Charles Dexter Ward Mansion, looking out over Providence, and I thought, I have got to run a game set in Providence this weekend. So I had some mad fever dream that night grab some people in the morning and we played it on that outlook that park that overlooks providence and it was a scenario set with them all in there at that time they were going to play again with me and i disappeared leaving only my shoes so sometimes i just get a mad inspiration to do something that would really fit the moment that's not a helpful anecdote at all i just make shit up <laughs> i mean I've, I've had good luck running scenarios at at cons or at uh, events that are tied in with the local geography and it it lets the people feel like... When I was at UConn, for example, I ran a scenario set at the University of Michigan in the 60s for Fall of Delta Green, and they were like, oh, yeah, we feel like we can get it. And as long as you either have done enough research that you can't have the guy go, excuse me, there was no cafeteria there then, or you make sure to find that guy and say, hey, what would be the building that you'd be running into now after yeah. that explosion? And then they will feed you the answer and doom themselves because they'll say, the chemistry lab. Are <laughs> <laughs> you banned? That's right. great. Why did I say chemistry lab? Why didn't I say helpless dormitory full of soft mattresses? <laughs> I, I do love it when the players give you yeah. the worst idea possible. And that's what they always do. With the um, the Poland scenario, it was actually written by my friend John Common, who's now running Arcanacon, which is a wonderful Melbourne convention. It's a bit like OrcaCon. Um we, he wrote this in 1985 because we are very old. Um, and I always recalled it as a lot of fun and it's set in a coal mine. So when Pierkon in Poland invited me last year, I thought, well, this is a lot of people playing Cthulhu for the first time. So wouldn't it be great to play it in Poland? So with my usual hubris, I thought, well, it takes an Australian to do that for you. Um, and that was really nice because that scenario is set in 1922, which is the moment Poland gets its independence. And the scenario starts with such optimism at that moment. And that's another technique that really got people on board because literally their faces lit up because 1922 independence, 1939, things went horribly wrong and then the Iron Curtain horribly wrong. But now in Poland, this is just massive resurgence, a cultural such energy around gaming. So even though I was Australian, giving people a local story, that worked out really nicely. But I wanted to say about, for all me flapping my arms and engaging people, I had a fantastic game with a player, and she played this perfect German missionary. It's really great, really enjoyed the session. And the next day I met her at Carcosicon, and she'd played your yellow sign, your one game that night. And she says... I've just played a role-playing game with Robin Law's The Yellow Sign, and that is the first time ever I've actually been scared. And I was like, well, I guess I suck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they, she was literally raving because that scenario scared her for her very being, whereas I just shred you and blow you up and eat you. So uh, well done, you. Yes, well, the, the Yellow King is all about uh, reality dissolving and... Uh, you know, reality is evolving is worse than having a crocodile bite you. <laughs> Especially if you're super attached to it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, we talked about having energy. Do you have uh, practical tips for how to have energy? Or is that just uh, intrinsic to your being? A bunch of mystical woo-woo that doesn't help. Um, well, I did public speaking as a kid. I do a lot of dungeon mastering. Um, I do some teaching. Um, but I think I really believe in my story and I want you to like me and I want you to like the story and I try to find out about you. So I'm kind of connecting from the get go because I'm thrilled that you're playing with me. Um, I do a lot of techniques that if the house is dark and spooky and there's no sign all around. So I use my voice a lot, and then suddenly the hyena laughs. So I moderate volume um, and um, yeah, sort of take that as a challenge to draw people in. It's actually weird enough if you start to lower your voice, they literally lean towards you. Um, I will stand a lot, and particularly during kind of action sequences. I'm, I actually put people on the spot 
um, I'm kind of horrible because I really insist on pacing and, and kind of getting them to play as fast as my brain is working. And if that spell works, then everybody is really jamming on it. But sometimes I'm so intense with the story, what do you do now, that people are almost like, you know, they, they almost can't process it, they're a little bit overcome. So it's a little bit Sturm und Drang. Um, but I think um, just trying everything I can to, to make the story entertaining. And all of those scenarios at their core are fairly simple. And so not having a super complicated thing that I have to read a million handouts and make kind of, you know, conspiracy diagrams, um, that helps as well. Too. I find that really helps in a convention scenario is make it even simpler than you think you need to make it and then get to the part where everyone goes crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the part everything goes crazy, that's the other thing. Um, if it's a campaign, we're running Horror on the Orange Express, I kind of want you to get through. But a convention scenario, like three hours, we're not going to see each other again. So if my, my optimum goal is four mad and dead and one survivor slash winner, well, that's that's right. one of what you go for. And the thing is, at a convention, I mean, we're all in sort of holiday mode and festival time anyway. But if you're signing up for a game that has Of Cthulhu in it, we know what you're signing up for. You're yeah. signing up to have your character be brutalized, yeah. to go insane, to uh, have the veils torn from your eyes, and to just sort of go through that full-on pity and terror roller coaster as fast and as deep and as hard as you possibly can. It's And it's also, like again, the, the alchemy of role-playing and dice and, and the arcs of story that are there, and we don't even know kind of how well, or sometimes, of course, it's player skill. But there was one version of the pollen scenario where the... There was a, a character, she was a journalist, journalist, she was played by Alex Katu on Twitter, she's a phenomenal player. Sorry, she was a geologist. Another player was a driver. Now, he'd come back from the war and her husband hadn't. And there was late in the scenario where he went mad, he flipped the biscuit, and she kind of needed him, you know, to kind of help. And she just turned around and gave this speech really addressing her dead husband. It's like, why did you die? Why did you leave me? I need you now. And that brought him out of himself. And so those moments, like, that the players, like, that's what you live for. That's the sweet stuff. So if I can facilitate you to live in your character, then that's just gold. And then die in your character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tragically, she lost the husband twice. Oh. But she did save the world, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, on the note of saving the world, thank you so much for talking to us, Mark. Thank you for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to uh, journey into uh, that most Ken-like of huts. That is, of course, the History Hut. And uh, there's all sorts of things that can be in the History Hut because uh, history has gone on uh, for quite a long time. That is the, the main thing about history is that it, uh, and it keeps it on keeps going. It keeps on keeping on. Yep. And this time, uh, we've got so many topics uh, bound up in one person that we're just going to get uh, to it. This person is so exciting that two, count them, two Patreon backers, Kevin Nault and Ian Carlson, asked us to delve into the story of Baron Franz Nopcha. And uh, there was no pronunciation guide on uh, Wikipedia, so undoubtedly that is incorrect. So Hungarians, type the correct pronunciation into Twitter, and, uh, and it will be there for posterity. And so we promise to uh, do better next time we talk about him. Right. So he uh, was born in 1877, lived till 1931. 33. Uh, he's uh, a Hungarian 
aristocrat, adventurer, geologist, paleontologist, and albinologist. What is an albinologist, you ask? Well, just hang on and we'll tell you. But it seems like he's a multi-classer, Ken. He is. He's one of the, he's a GURPS guy. He is not a D&D guy. He has got a, a big list of skills and he's not afraid to add more. He's the guy who has area lore parentheses Albania. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that was, that was uh, a necessary skill to, uh, to his ambition of becoming king of Albania. It was. It, it, I mean, many people have become king of Albania without caring a whit about Albania. So whatever else you want to say about Baron Napsha, and there are some bad things that we will have to say about him and it will break our heart to do it. <laughs> lack of interest in his putative subjects is not one of them. Right. So uh, he must have had many origin stories since he was six <laughs> different characters. Uh, but the, the paleontologist side of him uh, came into being uh, when uh, he was a kid and his younger sister, Ilona, found dinosaur bones uh, on the uh, ancestral estate in Transylvania. And uh, we have to assume that since this is history hut and not nonsense hut, that they were actual dinosaur bones. They, they were. Like they were legit dinosaur bones. They were yeah. a iguanodon and some hadrosaurs. And um, he, uh, and, and again, uh, there's a lot of things not to like about Baron Napsha, but his paleontology is on point. He brings the bones to a paleontologist, a professor, and uh, says, what about these bones? And the guy says, oh, they're dinosaur bones. And he says... Well, what do we know about them? And he says, nothing. Go study them. (laughs) (laughs) You tell me. You tell me, expert. So he goes to the University of Vienna. He studies geology. And being a baron and kind of a jerk, he sort of goes in and says, well, you're all studying dinosaur bones wrong. You should study them as, as bones of animals, not as rocks that happen to fit together. That's stupid. And the fact that he was right did not make him any less of a jerk for saying so. Uh, yes, if only being right made us uh, gracious. Um, <laughs> That's right. If yeah, only. So, so in deciding to look at dinosaur bones as, uh, you know, maybe there is meat and flesh and an animal around these at and, one and point. And glands. Uh, he founded what he did not call, but was later came to be called paleobiology. Yes. And among the theories that he suggested uh, decades and decades before they were all proven correct and widely accepted were that Many dinosaurs might be warm-blooded. Uh, dinosaurs probably cared for their young. And uh, guess what? Those sparrows flying around us, dinosaurs. Those dinosaurs. Those were all uh, things that he uh, realized uh, ages and ages before uh, everybody came around to uh, agree with him. And uh, he also uh, came up with the theory of insular dwarfism. Uh, which is what happens when animals are confined to a, a small space like an island and uh, therefore get smaller. So uh, he was uh, looking at the uh, fossil bones of, of various ancient reptiles, but uh, the uh, that still applies to like, you know, uh, pygmy Modern day uh, elephants and pygmy hippos and stuff. So, uh, so if he'd only thought of that, all of those things, uh, that would be uh, enough for, for one lifetime. Uh, but that was just a, a mere uh, a part of uh, what he was all about. A bagatelle, if you will. Yes. He was also uh, uh, lived more or less an openly gay life with his assistant slash lover, uh, Basajid Elmaz Doda. Uh, so he's a, uh, that he's a pioneering figure in that respect. But he was also an adventurer and a spy. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, um, it looks as if... Uh, his interest in Albania begins with his interest in an Albanian, uh, specifically, as you mentioned, uh, Bayezid Doda, and being a, a good boyfriend, goes home to meet the fam, and he, as a geologist, he's like, these rocks are cray, and begins to study the geology of, uh, northern Albania, and because that's where he is. He's, they, they live off in the mountains, and he's like, as a geologist, I'm fascinated, I want to keep going to these mountains, also, makes my boyfriend happy, everyone's a winner. In his memoirs, he says the first time he uh, rode across the border into Albania, everyone had warned him that it was full of bandits. And so he'd packed a Mannlicher Carcano rifle with a sniper scope and the whole nine yards. And he rides across the border and someone shoots his hat off his head. <laughs> and then they just don't stick around. They're like, screw you with your hat. Yeah. And that is what he, how he learns of Albania. And so he grows to love it. And uh, Dota's dad is totally cool with his son's rich gay lover, which is, I guess, nice. I don't know how openly uh, that was accepted in mountain Albania, but I would not have thought that well, but sure enough, everyone's friends. Um, and he begins to build a large political 
following basically on the clan. Your clan is you're with this clan. So you're with this other clan uh, type loyalties that Albania basically was riven by back in the day. And he thought, well, this is Albania is run by the hated Turks. Why don't we liberate them? And then they can become part of the glorious Astro-Hungarian empire to which the Albanians probably said, I like half your plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And until you hit the good junction, I was yes. on board. Right. Other Albanians uh, were also down with the plan, except they wanted to be bribed by the Austrians to run Albania. And Dota didn't like the idea of anyone bribing someone to run Albania unless it was him. So they had a conference after the Balkan Wars in which he played a part as a spy, which probably means uh worked with his Albanian clan allies to undermine the Turkish action and uh, shore up the pro-Austrian parts of the Albanian melange. And then at the Congress of, uh, uh, I think it's Vienna, they have a Congress to decide who's going to be, or maybe it's Trieste, it's somewhere. They have a Congress to decide who's going to be in charge of Albania now that the Turks are gone. And there's a million candidates, and the Greeks back one of them, and they march in and take over Janina, which is part of Albania, although the Greeks, I guess, would say it was part of Greece, and say, well, that's what we wanted. You guys sort it out for yourself. And they, and so the Albanians all agreed they didn't want a Greek, uh, backed guy, but there was a British backed guy, there was a German backed guy, and, uh, Baron Napsha, apparently working on his own, said, why don't I be the Austrian backed guy? And then what will happen is, because I'm a Baron and classy, if you make me king of Albania, I will just meet a, uh, beautiful American woman, or rather a rich American woman, and I will marry her because she will want to be a queen, and then we'll have all the funds because we'll have rich American money. And no one liked that plan, including, in fairness, probably uh, Napsha, because he didn't really want to marry an American of any level of, an American woman of any level of beauty or richness. He was perfectly happy with uh, Dota. And so she would also have to have a girlfriend, I think, for that to work. Yeah, and, and nowhere in the in in the uh, sort of the memoir does Dotus, uh not Dota, does Napsha say that the plan was rejected. It's just like he suggested, it and everyone was like, "So sort of <laughs> it was and, entertained, right?" Yeah, it was like, um, uh, maybe uh, lamb. Everyone think lamb for lunch. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's break for lunch, everyone. And and that happened. And then so Albania got a different king, a German king, just like it deserved, quote unquote, and uh, became a, a a shattered wreck, as could have been predicted. And um, uh, after. Uh, in World War One, um, once more, uh, Napsha became a an agent, but Andrew done such a good job in Albania that the uh, Austrian government said, "Let's send you to Romania because you have similar uh, connections to Transylvania," and that worked about as well as anything, except of course that uh, after the war, Romania took Transylvania away. And said, now it's part of Romania. And by the way, Mr. Spy against us, we're seizing your lands. So he suddenly had to earn a living, which was not something that he was congenitally good at. So he wound up, he wound up as the head of the Hungarian Geological Institute and immediately angered everyone in the Hungarian Geological Institute, as well as the board who funded the Hungarian Geological Institute. So they fired him. And uh, he also would leave the Institute and go on long motorcycle journeys with his uh, secretary, Dota, and um, uh, study fossils and come back and say, why didn't you do anything with the Institute while I was gone? Uh, And you're not allowed to go off on your own fossil trips, apparently. He sold his collection of the Natural History Museum to pay his debts in, in London. And then his health began to fail. He had a bad sort of, uh, he had a bad 1920s, I guess, all the way around. And in 1933, uh, he's getting old. The money's gone. He's going to have to start selling off his library of albanological manuscripts, which he doesn't want to do. And he's worried, according to his suicide note, that uh, Dota would, would be penniless and sad after he died. So he decided to murder his boyfriend and then commit suicide, which he did. Yeah, in so 1933. He, he drugs him uh, into unconsciousness first and then shoots him. Mm-hmm. I would think there should, you know, there should always be a st- step where you ask someone if they want to be shot for yeah. their own good. I, mean, I think that, I think we've learned that as part of consent here. culture. Yeah. Is if you're on a date, you say, is it okay if I drug and shoot you? <laughs> and then if people say yes, well, don't go on that date. And if they say no, yeah. also don't go on that date. Yeah. So a, a sad ending. A uh, sad to, ending to an to exciting an awesome story. story. So if you are uh, adding a bunch of make-believe to this, uh, you might uh, want to make that the cover story, I guess, at the end uh, mm-hmm. for why they have to disappear. And then they're off 
riding dinosaurs in the inner earth together or something. And uh, his life is so exciting. We even left out the incident where uh, he and Dodo were held hostage by a bandit and had to be bailed out by dad. That's another uh, exciting bit of that. So, And then the fact that uh, Transylvania used to be an island in dinosaur times, which is just fascinating to me for so many different reasons. So if you're trying to, you know, maroon Dracula in the past, he's on a dinosaur island, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, even Dracula would have some challenges on Dinosaur Island. Um, and uh, since that was the obvious outcome of this entire episode to get to that <laughs> point, I think it's time that we uh, uh, get the heck out before anything else happens. Right. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from poisonous koala bites alongside such Patreon backers as... Jan Zaleski. Rich Ranallo. Ryan Mannix. Scott Stefanski. And Andrew Cowie. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>